And for this, I left Shanghai. So this is Cinema Excelsior, where we uh, analyze, dissect, critique the films of Marvel Comics. Uh, our goal is to understand what makes these films succeed or fail as adaptation, as production, and as art. Uh, I am Stephen Claypool, and joining me today uh, is a, a cavalcade of stars, a, uh, a round table. The, uh, okay, so how am I going to do this today? So I am going to be uh, I am going to be uh, Frank today. Uh, Nick, you uh, Nick Bester is the uh, the shake to my Frank. Uh, okay. Yep. Uh, Daniel Watson Jones joining us today. He is the Lady Tanaka to my Frank. Okay. And and uh, our. Fourth host, Derek Long, you are the Berkowitz to my Frank because you're too old for this shit. <laughs> now, I'd just like to point out, when you said awesome. shake, I thought you meant S-H-E-I-K. <laughs> I was like, I don't remember there being a shake in this, uh, in this movie. I so thought like, he meant master shake about? from Aqua Teen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um... No, don't don't you remember the the shake character? No, no, he no, captured, no I, I remember. Yeah, he captured our hearts. Yeah, no, I, I, I remember. No. Um... So yes, today's today's film is the 1989 classic *The Punisher*, directed by Mark Goldblatt and starring Dolph Lundgren, Lou Gossett Jr., and I'm going to mispronounce a name here: Jerome Crabby. Jerome Crabby. 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 I would say Crabby. I, I actually tried to look for an interview clip of him on YouTube and could not find one uh, where he just to see his, his name, name being pronounced. You are way more pre prepared for this I than am I am. not at all prepared. I did that while watching the movie about an hour ago. Okay, so again, no one spoiled the surprise ending of The Punisher for Dooge. <laughs> wait, wait, does everyone get punished? <laughs> <laughs> no, only the guilty. Only the oh, guilty okay. get punished. All right. So yes, this this is the Punisher. This is the first of three adaptations of the Punisher character from Marvel Comics. Um, all of which did terribly at the All of which office. did terribly, were terrible, and were was, not connected to one another. Wasn't Warzone, a, was that direct-to-DVD, or was that... Nope, nope, nope that came nope, out that, in... Uh, oh, that wow. okay. it must yep. have been limited release or something. Uh, have you so, guys seen... No, I think it. I think it just did poorly enough to yeah. where they, they okay, yanked it out of completely unaware of it. Oh, exactly, you, you blinked and missed it. The uh, the YouTube only short, uh, the Punisher, Dirty Laundry, Dirty Laundry, with Tom Chain. Uh, we will talk about that in several weeks, okay, or right. months perhaps, when we get to Tom Jane's Punisher. All right. We don't want to jump continuities here. Fair enough. Now, Stefan, I don't, I don't want to jump in front of you here, but are you going to talk about uh, the distribution of, I, of this film? I, I am. Okay. So we've got... Uh, All right. We, we are going to have an intense, in-depth roundtable discussion. But before <laughs> we begin, uh, for the benefit of those at home, The Punisher is available uh, on DVD, and it is available for free on YouTube, and no one is rushing to take it down. Um, you can watch it if you'd like. Whether or not you want to depends on the kinds of life choices that you want to make. The kind and of life you want to make. how much you, you like yourself. Yep. 
I'm going to come out right now and say, I'm going to come out and defend this movie. I think I enjoyed I, I, it. I'm with Nick, actually. Right. I'm, I'm, I'll be a little uh, more favorable towards it. Yeah. Okay. We, we, well, good. We've got a, yeah. we got a thing going here. We, we, will, uh, we will get to that in, in a moment. But for the benefit of those at home, uh, a brief plot summary and trivia about the Punisher character and film. So the plot of The Punisher, 1989. Frank Castle is a cop whose family was killed five years ago in a mob hit. Frank has since taken to living in the sewers of whatever city he's supposed to be living in. And doling, yeah. <laughs> and doling out his own... Yeah, the space needles back there. <laughs> and doling out his own personal brand of justice as a vigilante known only as The Punisher. Frank's old partner, Berkowitz, played by Lou Gossett Jr., uh, Oscar winner Lou Gossett Jr. suspects that Frank and the Punisher are one and the same, but is being told by City Hall to keep a lid on it. Frank has killed 125 people over the past five years. Uh, mobster Dino Moretti is acquitted of the murder of Frank's family, but promptly killed by Frank, causing fellow mob leader Gianni Franco, played by Jerome Crabbe, or... Yes... Uh, to come to town and take over the family. Uh, Franco wants to buy out the other mobsters in the city, but the arrival of y Yakuza leader Lady Tanaka, played by Kim Miori, uh, I pronounced it like it was Swedish, not Japanese, Miori, uh, causes a full-blown gang war to erupt. Tanaka kidnaps the children of other mob leaders and begins her takeover of the city, and Frank is guilted into taking action when his man on the street alcoholic retired actor Shake, played by Boz Lerman favorite Barry Otto, points out that the instability of the city's underworld is the result of Frank's rampage. Uh, Frank rescues all but one of the kids, Franco's son Tommy, and is finally arrested by the police. After an intense reunion with Berkowitz, uh, Frank is busted out of prison by Franco, and the two of them go to rescue Tommy together and take down Lady Tanaka for once and for all. Frank kills Tanaka and then deals with Franco's sudden but inevitable betrayal, killing him as well. Uh, he then traumatizes Franco's son horribly and vanishes into the sewers, having learned nothing and accomplished very little. Uh, I haven't Bert seen that part yet. <laughs> Spo wait, wait. Spoilers. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Berkowitz is left screaming for him from the rooftops. And we leave this film none the wiser for it. Uh, what what yeah. happens to Shake? <laughs> Shake doesn't really appear after that. Yeah, that's, that's really good. He oh. kind of drops out of the yeah. He he, so, he runs he down was, the street and drops a Punisher knife that tips uh, Lugasa Jr. off that, uh, that Frank's involved. Yes. Okay. <sighs> so a little bit of Punisher trivia before we dive in. So the Punisher was created by Jerry Conway and John we, Romita Sr. Can we go back and you, can you call that trivial punishment? <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to record a sound clip and then we'll dub this in at the beginning. Okay. Trivial punishment. There we go. Thank you. Um, created by Jerry Conway and John Romita Sr. in 1974. Uh, not surprisingly, they designed his costume first. Shocking. Shocking. And he's never actually in that costume. Yes. In the, movie. Uh, the Punisher began. The only thing anyone knows about the Punisher, and it doesn't show up. This was a point of some contention yes. at the screening. And I, 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 re I really want to hear the uh, the rationale for it. 
Uh, the Punisher began life as a Spider-Man villain. Uh, he was a vengeful former U.S. Marine working with the Jackal. And he was part of kind of a broader movement of post-Vietnam, morally ambiguous action heroes, sort of uh, in the, the Death Wish mold, the Dirty Harry mold, the Shaft mold. John Rambo. John Rambo, yep. Well, in, in the 80s, he was kind of reinvented as a Rambo-esque or more Schwarzenegger-like pure action hero. And at one point starred in three monthly comics. Three Punisher comics being published wow. every month. Mm-hmm. Uh, his he popular He was. His popularity collapsed in the mid-90s. Uh, and then the character underwent a few revamps. Uh, first, he committed suicide and came back to life as an avenging angel for, for God. That, obviously, obviously that didn't happens all the time that didn't last very long i'm an avenging angel for god um this this was ignored when garth enos and steve dillon relaunched the character in sort of a classic gritty vigilante role uh this was probably now when you, i think it's when you say ignore do you mean that they did not acknowledge it in they any did way? not acknowledge it in any way that's awesome <laughs> i i think his name is pronounced garth ennis but i'm not sure about garth that. ennis i believe you're probably ennis. correct um, this was probably the most critically and artistically successful version of the character, and he kind of existed more or less outside of the broader Marvel Universe. Uh, this version died at the end of his series, so that's two deaths. And then he was relaunched back into the Marvel mainstream uh, by Matt Fraction in 2006 in more of a traditional comic book take. Now, the I have to mention this before we get to the film. The goofiest and most notable thing to happen to the Punisher... Wait. Pro- I think this may be the this may be the only Punisher comic that I have read. <laughs> wait for it. Wait for okay. it. It's probably the only yep. one I've read. Um, goofiest and most notable thing to happen to him, at least in the last decade, uh, was his death again and dismemberment at the hand of Wolverine's immortal half Japanese bisexual son Dakin, who is not to be confused with Wolverine's hypersexualized claw-footed daughter X twenty three. Frank is killed and then resurrected by Morbius as a Frankenstein's monster-type patchwork character named Frankencastle. <laughs> Not what I thought you were going to talk yeah, about. Yeah, Nick, were you I, thinking of The Punisher Kills the Marvel Universe? Yes. Okay. That's what I thought he was meant. And then I was going to object to that being the goofiest, because I'm pretty sure the goofiest is Marvel meet, is Punisher meets Archie. <laughs> Because there's a crossover event between Marvel Comics and Archie Comics where Punisher goes to Riverdale. Of course! That's the goofiest. Um, oh my god. But yes, I was thinking of yes. pu- uh, Punisher Kills the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Who wrote that? Do, does anyone Punisher know? Punisher Kills the Marvel Universe? Yeah. I don't know. The Frankencastle bit was eventually undone by magic. And that, okay. that, now that all of this context is established, we can talk about the film, which was released theatrically worldwide, but not in the U.S. or Sweden, interestingly enough. Uh, Derek Long, why is that? Uh, well, the uh, studio that produced this film, uh, New World Pictures, actually went out of business um, in uh, before its U.S. distribution, and so um, they, they didn't want to... <laughs> Want to release it theatrically in the mm. it, it was essentially direct to video in the United mm-hmm. States. It was it was one of the very first actually direct to video films mm. released in the world. Mm. Huh. So so broadly, very interesting. Yes. 
I, I would like to point out. For, for the, for, I apologize. Uh, I apologize for the knowledge that you've accumulated in the course of this podcast. For, for, for those of you who can't I mean, see this a at Punisher home, movie. This isn't about learning things. Yeah, it's not supposed to be an existential experience. <laughs> um, it does make yeah. sense, though. The, the only way I'd ever seen it was on VHS at other people's houses. Uh-huh. I mean, not actually viewed the film, but physically seen the object that was the VHS tape of the film on someone's <laughs> shelf. But now, now you've finally had the opportunity to see it. Well, yes. except for the last four minutes. <laughs> um, yeah. So, again, kind of the, the broad framework of the conversation is what makes this film succeed and fail uh, as an adaptation of the sort of comic character, but also as a standalone piece. And we kind of established we've got some divergent opinions on this. So, uh, Nick Bester, would you like to begin the conversation by giving us your take on The Punisher? Sure. Um, now, I would, like to, I would like to point out, I'm not arguing that it succeeds. <laughs> I don't think this is a successful movie. But I don't think it's an awful movie. I feel like, like there's different categories of bad movies. There's, there's the so bad they're good movies, the just sort of mediocre movies. And then there's movies that, you know, have some have some good ideas and with some better execution would have been at least good movies. And I think this falls into that category. I think it's not that far off the mark. Um, and honestly, one of the things I most liked about it was that it didn't get bogged down in the origin story. Mm-hmm. Like, it hmm. starts out and Punisher is already Punisher. Frank Castle has been doing this for five years. There is, like, probably a 15-second long flashback to... His family being killed in a car bomb. And Dolph Lundgren exhibits far and away the most range of his acting skill in that 15 seconds. Yes, it's essentially him running in slow motion, reaching out to the explosion. Um, And I just feel like so many many movies get pointlessly bogged down in the origin story. It certainly works well for Punisher, given that he is such a simple character that you really can just do this in like two lines and a brief flashback. Mm -hmm. But then you have other characters who are much more iconic that everyone really knows the story of already. I really don't think you need to explain where Superman or Batman is from anymore. I feel like Batman, you could probably do about the same amount of backstory on Batman and get into the details, which is arguably what the Burton movie does. The Burton movie uh, mm-hmm. at least starts in media res, whereas almost every other uh, superhero movie I've, I've seen has to establish uh, who this person was before they were a superhero, which I don't really give a shit about. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in them, you know, being Batman, being the Punisher, being Spider-Man. I don't need to... Um, I don't think this will be the first of, time that, or the last time that Burton's Batman comes up here. No. Um, <laughs> uh, I Nick, think, while, while, sorry, Nick, while, while you're on that point, yes. um, interestingly... Uh, the the film originally did have a backstory for the Punisher. Basically, the first act was origin story Frank Castle before he became the Punisher. Yeah, that would have um, sucked. Yeah, and he, and it was cut out. Like um, Mark Goldblatt, the the director, he I mean he actually made his career as an editor. I mean he's he's a pretty famous editor. Of, he edited of Starship Troopers. Um, he edited Starship Troopers. He's collaborated. Derek, yes. If I if I could interrupt Please. you for a second. You should probably explain why you have this cornucopia of knowledge about this, given that you, you saw this in a much different context than the rest of us did. So why don't you yeah. just set up how you watch this movie? Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I was just going to get to that. Um, so I um, actually saw this uh, in a screening with the director, uh, Mark Goldblatt, and uh, you know, probably 30, 40 other people. 
um, at a weekly Cinematheque that um, we do at the university I teach at. Um, so he um, basically introduced the film, and there was a little bit of a Q&A afterwards. So learned all sorts of uh, interesting things about the film. Um, and one of them was, yeah, that originally there was an origin story, and Goldblatt looked at it, and he said, this is, this is dragging pretty terribly, and basically re-edited it. And got rid of all of the all of the origin story stuff. So we start in Medias Res. Um, you know, we start with the you know that mob boss coming back, and and basically the Punisher murdering him. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and and Goldblatt did that because he he needed like a jumpier sort of actiony start to the the film. So I think it works really well. Um, yeah, I think it works really well. I mean. Yeah, going back to Batman, and interestingly, the movie brings up Batman at least two different times, which was probably which not a good move. It's not a good move, a oh, because this is great, a character actually. belonging to a rival uh, rival company, and Batman is a much better character than the uh, than the Punisher is. It just seems strange to keep uh, comparing uh, comparing the two. I think, it's uh, but I mean, if you think about it, I suppose. Oh. Um, although, although a lot of the time you feel like superheroes exist in a universe where superheroes don't exist. Like yeah. most, most superhero movies aren't going around talking about, oh, there's a pre-existing genre of superhero movies. So it's interesting that this one at least acknowledges that, at the very least, DC comics seem to exist in, well, I, in this. So, so world building. I, I think it, it makes perfect sense, though, because uh, the, Punisher is, the Punisher and Batman are, are the two superheroes I know of who are not superheroes, that they don't have any magical powers, uh, that they operate within our world. And it also makes sense to me that a Marvel character would dis- would mention a DC character because if you are going to be consistent within the Marvel universe, then he can't mention a comic book of another char- another character who is a person within his world. He would mention a fictional character mm-hmm. who would have to be someone from the rival company. One of the no, that makes sense. One of the things that, in addition to the repeated mentions of Batman over the course of the film, that struck me was structurally how similar this film was. I don't want to say ripped off, but um, serendipitously aligned with Burton's Batman film. You, you uh, ha- I, have, I, have, I have another movie I want to compare it to, but you, you, you finish up. We, we, have, uh, we have Frank beginning the film as the Punisher. There is no uh, sort of big, big origin buildup. He makes his debut in action early in the film. This is immediately followed up by the cop character. Uh, in Burton's Batman, it was Eckhart, who of course got killed. But in this one, it was Berkowitz investigating the scene, dismissing rumors of Frank's existence as the Punisher. Um, the, the one thing that we kind of miss is sort of the Vicki Vale love interest. But everything about sort of the way the character is treated by the authorities, the way the character functions in relation to mob bosses and criminals in the city, the way that um, much of the story is told from the perspective of other people investigating what Frank is doing. So in Burton's Batman, it would have been Knox and Vicki Vale. And in this, it's Berkowitz. And what, what was Berkowitz's partner's name, the spunky partner? Um, I don't know. She used computer magic to find Yeah, him. the spunky partner. Um, the, the story being told from their perspective. Um, it, it felt like... Because this came out... May- Sam. Sam Lear. Sam Lear. It, it felt like this, you know, this came out maybe four or five months after Burton's Batman. 
So I don't know how much it actually could have been influenced by it, unless someone had seen an early screening. Or it was. I mean, it, it, it was influenced. I mean, he hadn't seen the the film, yeah. but they knew it was coming yeah. out, and so that's that's why they threw in all of the Batman. Records. Yeah. And, okay, that makes sense. And it just there were definite points in the film where it felt like, oh, this was in here to draw comparisons to Batman. So that's yeah. No, yeah. I see that. Yeah. All right, now I have a I have another movie comparison. This one's probably even more out there. Kill Bill, hmm. uh, which I realize is probably a more out there uh, comparison. Uh, but there's there are several things. And I don't know if there's like any like actual inspiration being taken from this movie, but certainly elements that made me think of it. First of all, I mean the character is just fundamentally similar. You have He's played uh, by Uma the bride and Frank. The the bride and Frank both their families have been murdered by this criminal organization. Mm-hmm. And they dedicate themselves to uh, k- killing all these people. Um, you have Oda and Ishii and Lady Tanaka, which both get des- who, who are both described in very similar terms as being the first women to rise to the top of the yakuza. I, re- I really want to. Uh, I really want to talk about the uh, sort of Japanese phobia going on in the film. But we can. Oh we- my God! There's a lot to talk <laughs> oh, about there. Amazing. We will talk about that. Uh, she, uh, Lady Tanaka's main lieutenant, is a sort of kick-ass younger woman. Mm-hmm. Um, Similar to uh, Go Go, what's her name? Kill Bill, uh, um, and she 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 fights with uh, blades in her uh, in her shoes, which I believe is something that Bud does, if I remember correctly, in uh, Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have uh, this may be spoiling it for uh, Dude, who wasn't able to see the last four it's minutes. Okay, Dude. Uh, but <laughs> but at the very at the very end, when uh, Frank successfully <laughs> kills the Mafia Don, uh, he he essentially has the exact same conversation that the bride has with. Uh, Vivica Fox's yeah. daughter about how he totally deserves revenge on him and completely traumatizes that kid for life. Like, there's no recovery yep. from that day for that kid. <laughs> yes, but to be fair, it was kind of lose lose for that kid because the alternative was watching his father murder the man who had just saved his life. So obviously, his father being murdered was going to be the more traumatic of the two options. But it's not like he was going to come out roses after his father. And I'm glad that you used the phrase earlier, sudden and inevitable betrayal, because that's exactly what it is. (laughs) Frank, thank you for helping me. Now I'll help you to your grave. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, I don't don't think... I'd be surprised if Quentin Tarantino specifically said, you know what, I'm going to borrow these elements from this little scene Punisher movie. Mm -hmm. But there are definitely parallels there that that made me go, hmm, maybe. Well, well, visual style, too, right? I mean, at the... Sorry. Like, in the... um, just that that whole room where um, you know the the whole you know the ninja assassin squad like trains, um, yeah. like it looks right out of Kill Bill, like the where the the, the crazy eighty eights basically mm-hmm. are hanging out, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, like is, yeah. Uh, dude, you were going to say that something? Quentin Tarantino shtick, though, like all of his all of his films tend to be an amalgamation oh, yeah. of other films and Kill Bill is nothing but yeah I, mean, obviously, but he's he's, I haven't seen all of the Kung but he's also usually references but I mean in my experience Tarantino is usually pretty sort of forthcoming about what he's borrowing mm. from and at least in my experience I don't think he's ever identified the Punisher as being a text that he was borrowing from when he was making Kill Bill yeah. uh, and it's certainly a possibility it was um, but and, and I didn't to, necessarily to fair, mean intentionally sir, yeah yeah, it's hard to say. And certainly The Punisher itself is borrowing from a long line of other films. And that, that was one of the things that, that struck me going through, and we can talk about this in relation to, uh, to The Skull. But 
this felt much more like a generic 80s action film than an adaptation of an established comic book character to the point where I almost wonder if this had been a script, like an 80s action script, and someone dropped the Punisher in there without really understanding anything about the Punisher. Hmm. Um, uh, well... Go ahead. Go ahead, Nick. Oh, no, I was I was letting you go ahead. <laughs> oh, sorry. You're so courteous. Yeah, well, I mean, the... Um, I don't know if that was necessarily the case. I mean, the writer um, is um, Boaz Yakin, yeah. um, and he's he's pretty successful screenwriter. Um, he wrote like Prince of Persia, mm-hmm. and he like, I think now you see me. A, yeah, now you see me. Um, safe. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I guess it's not out of the question. It, but I, I'm, I'm I not saying it was. I didn't get this, but it yeah, felt yeah. like it at times. Yeah, yeah. Like, like my theory of how uh, how Howard the Duck had been made is somebody just decided to slap a duck randomly. In yeah, there. instead of Michael J. Fox. But I mean, on the on the front of you know, like borrowing from other films, I mean the the whole plot point of our hero's family getting killed by a bomb in a car um, is right out of um, uh, a film called The Big Heat, which mm. is a, a Fritz Lang film. From the mm. 1950s. Um, oh yeah, starring certainly. starring Glenn Ford. Certainly, when I watched this, I, I thought Fritz Lang all the way through. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly, the their whole family's been murdered, and thus they're out for revenge. Element of it is the least compelling thing that I might might say. Oh, this is where it's similar to Kill Bill. Um, but it's it's dude. Can you still hear us? You yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Me? It's just it's. Whenever I talk, all of you guys get muted, and then all of the sound gets uh, delayed. So, also, I just didn't ah. have anything in particular to say at that. Okay, moment. yeah, I just, <laughs> as as I couldn't see you and I couldn't hear you, I just wanted to make sure you were you didn't have any yeah. problems. I'm still here. Um, uh, periodically, I will make a wild eep noise. <laughs> Good. Good. Eep. That'll be productive. Um, I think one of the one of the things that I definitely learned from the film, as someone who did not grow up reading Punisher comics is on, I mean, if we go by that idea that this is a fairly generic 80s action film that cribs mercilessly from other films, the defining characteristic of the Punisher is the shirt. Without the skull on his chest, I found it difficult to think of him as the Punisher, which probably doesn't speak volumes about the strengths and depths of this character. (laughs) And and is an interesting choice. So, Derek, um, do you... uh, there is no depth well, to his, his, his entire <laughs> well, existence is built upon the fact that he just kills bad people. There's no complexity to him at all. It's just <laughs> wish fulfillment yeah. for, for uh, the Charles Bronson crowd. Yeah. So, I mean, when you said a moment ago that it felt like sort of a generic 80s action movie, I think in some ways that's actually what I like most about it. Yeah. Like, I don't really, mm. I don't really, again, he's not a very... De- deep character. I don't really give a shit if it's faithful to the Punisher, because I have absolutely no investment in the Punisher as a character. Mm-hmm. But I thought I thought it was a reasonably well-made 80s action movies with enough sort of insane things happening there, particularly with the Yakuza, that I enjoyed it. Derek, did, uh, did Mr. Goldblatt provide any insight into the decision to leave the skull off the shirt? <laughs> um, well, he... <laughs> He was asked, 
Um, and his his response was was essentially that um, they didn't think it was it was necessary. Um, now, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the single defining element of the character. <laughs> This is reminding well, I me think a lot of uh, Michael Bay's of recent response to the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, yeah. and not thinking that it's important part, that they be teenagers and they're ninjas. Part of it was they they wanted the they wanted and perhaps perhaps it, this was it was not a good idea to uh, adapt to, to the cast furniture? the film the way they did um, based on this decision, but they didn't they they wanted the the character and the acting to sort of stand on its own without the, <laughs> <laughs> without the skull. Um, so they cast. Oh, he was able, so they cast off. He wanted a high concept which, Punisher film, which, which is which is my real point of contention with the movie is Dolph is Dolph Lundgren. Uh, but also they they wanted to. You have to sort of remember this is this is before. Uh, like comic book, book movies were really yeah. a thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, this no, is Batman. You know, just hit, but that that was it was a nascent form. It was a nascent form, and when this film was being produced, you know, the Batman hadn't been released mm-hmm. yet. And back then, the sort of conception about um, kind of moving image forms of comic books was basically based on the 60s Batman. Uh-huh. And so it was associated with high camp, with, you know, Biff, Zap, uh-huh. you know, very um, kind of stylized comic booky visual representations. Um, and associated with that was, you know, things like the Batman symbol, yeah. like, you know, the Punisher's sort of, you know, T-shirt. Uh-huh. Um, and so basically along that line of thinking was, you know, they, they for their sort of gritty vision to work... The skull, for whatever reason, I'm not defending their yeah. decision, but for, you know, within that sort of logic, they were sort of like, yeah, this might be a little too campy. Um, and so they, they decided not mm-hmm. to do it. Um, and basically they, um, you know, Goldblatt was basically saying, we did want to get the skull in there, which is why we put it on the knife. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, for, for, for your hardcore Punisher fans, it was, cl- it was clear there were a couple at the screening last <laughs> night, and they were not pleased that... <laughs> That is a, that's a very strange category of people, the hardcore yeah, Wait a minute, yeah. are you telling me that, you um, just, that this screening was last night? Uh, no, it was two nights oh, ago. But regardless, Recent. your screening Sorry. just happened to coincide with our scheduling of this podcast? It was a wonderful yeah. coincidence. Okay, I did not know that until it's now. It's pretty amazing. Um, I, do, I have it's to say amazing. that uh, today I watched uh, The Punisher Dirty Laundry, which yeah. makes a big deal out of the, uh, the shirt, even though he's not wearing mm-hmm. it through the, through the short. But then I watched this film, and admittedly, I was probably half watching it for, uh, I'd say, about a third of the time that I was watching it. But I honestly didn't even notice that he wasn't wearing the shirt. And that hmm. it sounds ridiculous to say it now, because it's really obvious. But the, the character was just acting like the Punisher the whole time. and So captivating was just, his performance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, I... I I had basically no exposure to the Punisher before watching this movie. I mean, I heard of the mm-hmm. character, um, and I maybe I knew vaguely about the shirt, but I didn't miss it either. Right? I mean, I, so I am really familiar at some with point, the character. At some point, actually. I distinctly remember he's not wearing the shirt. I wonder if he's going to put the shirt on for like the final building. The I kind of expected that was going to build up to. I it. figured it was in the last four minutes. Uh, <laughs> sadly, no, it does not. Four minutes. <laughs> 
Uh, we, we, kind, we kind of broached the topic in that conversation. Uh, do we want to talk about Dolph Lundgren's performance? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> His brilliant, brilliant performance. You see, for me, <laughs> the thin line separating this movie from passable, mm-hmm. uh, which it is, um, and potentially a good film, mm-hmm. Is Dolph Lundgren. Like, Dolph Lundgren makes that difference. Like, his his acting in this film, it just, it just destroys it. It's non-existent. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean... <laughs> I, I get that, you know, there's, they're portraying him as an emotionally shattered man, you know, a ghost of a man. So you want kind of mm-hmm. a sort of stoicism from him. But you want sort, you want that to be accompanied by the strong screen presence that someone like, you know, a, a Clint Eastwood could have pulled off. Um, or, th- like, the guy who walks into the room and just has that stone-cold killer vibe to it. Well, there has to be gravitas yeah. to it as well. And, and, and um, Lundgren just, he was... Derek, are you claiming that, that Dolph Lundgren does <laughs> not have gravitas? <laughs> Shocking, I <laughs> I just don't want to hear this. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's it seems unfair to you know criticize it also for the accent, but like you know the the accent kind of ruins it as well, um, because it it it's just it's an extra sort of barrier <laughs> to you know already the the acting mm-hmm. is you know is kind of wooden, but you know. Then you then you've just got that extra step you have I, to take, and it's sort of. Like, I found him more compelling when he recast. was not speaking, um, which is yeah. which is not yeah. a good sign. Um, no, he, he was he was miscast, and I that kind of got me thinking: Why was this conceived of as a vehicle for Dolph Lundgren? So you had Rocky okay. Four, and then you had Masters of the Universe, which was a terrible flop. And then you had... I didn't even know they made a Masters of And he was He-Man. Guess yeah. who was Skeletor? Uh, Eli Wallach. <laughs> um, no, Frank Langella. Ooh. No, but they, they did both of those? I wish it had been Eli Wallach. <laughs> the short Jewish Skeletor. Short Jewish playing a Mexican Skeletor. <laughs> yep. Uh, no, no, but the, but the, then he's cast in the Punisher, and so was this like was this an effort to make Dolph Lundgren as a star? Were they trying to coast on whatever star power he had left from Rocky Four? Like what was what was the episode? I think it was cast? that, and I mean it's it's a low budget picture, right? I mean it's <gasps> coming out of New World Pictures, so um, you know, real you know it could conceivably be that Dolph Lundgren was the caliber of star they could afford mm-hmm. for the Punisher. Um, yeah, I'm looking at this as really able just to a... Before Lou Gossett Jr., yeah. who doesn't come cheap. Oscar winner Lou Gossett Jr. <laughs> um, what was no. it? He, he won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for An Officer and a Gentleman a few years before this. So it, it was... He was... His name is on the poster, despite him fulfilling no plot functions. <laughs> the, the, the only thing that he does in... The, I have to say... Yeah, Sorry, I have to say, I I really love Lou Gossett Jr. in this film. <laughs> I mean, he, he kind of makes up for for the the negative influence of. Dolph and he's Lundgren. he's very clearly like he's doing the world weary cop bit, 
And he, he has... The only bearing on the plot that he has is he is kidnapped by uh, Franco's men to get Castle to work with them to rescue the son. He promptly breaks free <laughs> on his own. <laughs> Which is an incredible yeah, scene. Yeah. Like, I love that scene. <laughs> breaks free on his own, arrives just in time to not have any impact on the climax, and then scream from the rooftop. <laughs> That's true. I would also like to point out, while we're on the subject, <laughs> that, uh, that Lou Gossett Jr. was nominated for a Saturn Award for Best a- Actor for the 1985 film Enemy Mine, which is a childhood favorite of mine. <laughs> Enemy Mine! Yes! I love Enemy Mine! <laughs> yes. Oh my god. So, that was, uh... No, but that... No, that whole scene with where, where Lou... Where, where Berkowitz breaks himself out <laughs> from captivity. <laughs> and he's like, I gotta take a leap. Yeah. I mean, he used... He uses, like, the old trick in the yeah. book. <laughs> I gotta take a leak. What, you gotta hold the equipment? And he's yeah. handcuffed. What, you gotta hold the equipment your for me? Your boss wants a yellow stain <laughs> on the chair? <laughs> your boss, your boss wants a yellow stain on the on the, gym, on the leather? <laughs> so, he punches him out, and then the, the pizza guy comes. Oh, yeah, the pizza oh, no, guy. Yeah, no, well, I guess it's, no, it's not the pizza guy. It's another, like, gangster with the pizza he knocks yeah. out that guy, <laughs> takes a slice of pizza, and eats it. It's incredible. <laughs> and, then, and then arrives just in time to bump into Shake, find a knife, argue with an elevator repairman, and scream from a rooftop. He has no bearing on the plot. That's so right. my, my theory is that he exists for two reasons. Um, oh, no, three. Uh, one, to pad the running time of the film. Because no scene with him has any impact on anything. It's just exposition delivery. Uh, number two, uh, he exists so that when uh, Franco brings in one of Frank's friends to hold him hostage at the end, it doesn't have to be shake again, because that's already happened. <laughs> and number three, he exists to fulfill the role of like the, uh, the lover from Frank's former life. Like yeah, the 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 argument mm. that they have when Frank is in captivity, there was a lot of subtext there, a lot of subtext. There was no it, subtext. What are you talking about? Theirs is the central relationship. In it the is. Film. I mean, you have to, you have to applaud the film for not putting uh, Berkowitz's partner Sam in the like damsel yep. in distress role. I mean, she has even know. less of a bearing on the plot. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Impressively, like, I lost track. Like you have this. She basically, basically, her function in this film is to use a computer yep. and receive yeah, she uses exposition a computer to figure out that Frank lives in the sewer. They go find where he lives, and then I don't think appears again. No, no, she she to is in the. Uh, go ahead, dude. She she has like a pep oh, talk I mean, with uh, yeah. with Frank. Yeah. I, dude, I stopped what, looking dude, at the screen when she was ahead. actually doing the uh, the computer uh, check, but as I recall, the, the conversation went. This computer is going to solve, uh, going to tell us where he lives. And then Lou Gossett Jr. points to the board and says, I have pins from all of these places where he's committed these crimes. And then she says, what about under the city? Uh, and <laughs> d- does it. the computer... No, no, itself- no, 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 he's... Was it the computer yeah, that suggested like- the sewer or was it just her intuition? No, I think it was her intuition prompted by Berkowitz's line of like, I've looked... Over and yeah. around and through this city. <laughs> but not under it. 
and the She's computer like, actually does nothing, correct? <laughs> yes, exactly. Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> not that we can tell. Also, that is the scene where Berkowitz is the absolute closest to saying, I'm too old for this yes. shit. So, like, every other scene that has it, he's precariously close to, to doing it, but that's mm-hmm. definitely the scene, like, uh, a computer. But you, you have to admire them for having the restraint to not include the line that we all expected. Um, yeah. Because he's he, definitely he, playing he that is role. definitely too old for this shit. But he doesn't have to say it. His performance shows it. Show, don't tell. What is, what is the release of this film in relation to the Lethal Weapon films? Uh, after. Because that's that's, those the are the movies thing. that I specifically associate that line with. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the sort of iconic line of those movies. Okay. Um, at least the first two have come out at this point. Maybe the third one has. I'm not sure. All right. So I've got I've got one more performance I want to discuss, and then we have to get to uh, the the ugly uh, uh, subtext of the film. So the performance we have to discuss shake for a little bit. Oh my God, yes, we do need to. Yes, easily the best character. <laughs> oh yes, yes. So I. I can't remember Classic which scene it was, but there's definitely joke, a scene where I, where I realize, yes, there's a fantastic <laughs> thespian joke. What the hell's a thespian? But the second, the second or third and scene he's it. in, I real, the second or third scene he's in, I realize, I realize that he is actually talking in rhyming couplets. Yes. He's talking in iambic mm-hmm. pentameter, yep. which is amazing. Really uh, I, I lo- Go ahead, dude. Uh, I love that when when the, the guy in the bar is shocked that he would use the word thespian or what's a thespian? He says, Oh, an actor. Immediately. The man is friendly. Like he stopped being yeah. appalled. And whereas you <laughs> wouldn't expect him to give him any money for any reason, but now because he's an actor, he's overly friendly. Oh, you're an actor. I, I, actor. I, I love that, that sort of little introduction to him. And then I love how we first see him meeting Frank with the remote controlled oh, yeah. whiskey delivery. So yeah, the, the RC uh, car. Frank, <laughs> Frank has an RC car, like with a truck bed on it, onto which he has set a bottle of whiskey. The car drives around the corner of the bar, <laughs> turns around, it's and like Shake a, follows it, it like an. It does like a three-point turn. It actually yeah. goes into reverse. It doesn't just do a loop. <laughs> and Shake follows it like. A uh, an old cartoon character following a dollar bill on the end of a fishing line. Yes, follows <laughs> it around the corner, and Frank is standing there looking stoic. It was bizarre, and it was oddly whimsical for Frank. <laughs> so I have a couple questions. This is this is one problem that I have with a lot of action films. Actually, uh, I don't yeah. I don't mind it in completely ridiculous films, which most action films are. But when when the character has exactly what they need at that moment. With no preparation for that, it, it's like James Bond always has the gadget that he needs, but at least you see him acquiring the gadget earlier in the film. In this, mm-hmm. like, suddenly there's a noose flying down, the, d- down from the, the balcony to capture the, the guard in the beginning. Yeah. And clearly the noose has already like, been moving while he's stepping towards it, uh, but it, he just happens to have a noose right then when he needs it. Now he has an RC car. Was he waiting there for those four hours with the RC car, just like peeking out from around the corner, looking for him to get thrown out of the bar? Like I like to imagine that he was walking the streets of the city with the car tucked under his arm, just like this large just waiting for his moment. Exactly. 
My question is how Frank Castle charges that RC car <laughs> in the sewers. The, in, in his, like, man cave lit by candles. He charges it the same way that the professor naked. used to charge his coconut radio on Gilligan's <laughs> Island. The same <laughs> way Ed Bagley Jr. makes toast. <laughs> to be fair, I mean, with the exception of those two things, as I recall, Frank Castle's uh, armory is not particularly sophisticated. Yeah. He has, like, a couple guns and then an enormous number of knives. And guns that he finds. Which I find yeah. is, Infinite knives. Which I find really that strange because of- I'm... as. I don't really know much about the poster, but I'm pretty sure knives are not an iconic part of how he works. Um, he shoots people. Mm-hmm. He uses guns. But mm-hmm. they need skull on something, so knives. <laughs> he throws <laughs> knives at like half the people he kills. He uses guns, and he also yeah. frequently leaves guns places. Yes. Like, he'll bring like three or four guns into battle with him and leave half of them. He's, just, he's like, confident that he can get more. Where is he getting more? all yeah. these guns? <laughs> From killing people. I did ask at I one guess. point, how, how is he affording this, this lifestyle that he's leading? Although I suppose that given what he, uh, given what he needs, he's not like incurring heavy expenses. I imagine yeah, he probably a, steals he, he money from the people He doesn't have a Batman operation here. No. He might. He could, he could be doing that off screen. Because, I mean, if you really think about it, he needs gas for his motorcycle, yep. food, mm-hmm. and bullets. Because yeah. he seems to just be taking guns off dead people. And he, he has a lot of explosives. And knives every so often. He does have a lot of explosives. Okay. He, do, he, he, does he also seems to be bomb-proof. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> All the best ones are. He also appears to have, like, a, a, a mini forge, like so, a, a tiny bellows that he, can, that he can heat his knife to to cauterize his own yeah, wounds. Yeah. This is true. He does have uh, that they, they, In France, they call it la forge petite. <laughs> it's, it's, forge. You've got Frank living this lifestyle, his man on the street, Shake, his ex-partner, Berkowitz. Um... I would mention more about the gangsters themselves, but like the the American gangsters are not particularly memorable. Although we spent no. we spent a lot of time with them, but I don't ever remember them doing anything. However, what is memorable is the presence of the yakuza, <laughs> and I think we really need to talk about this. Yes. <laughs> what one can one I, can I, one factoid before we get to the yakuza? Yes. Mel Gibson's brother is one of the gangsters. Donald Gibson. Hmm. All right. Interesting. Wow. Yes. Now, can I explain the introduction of the Yakuza in the movie? Because that seems amazing. (laughs) You want to explain the Yakuza introduction? Go ahead. Yes. All right. So, Frank, in waging his one-man war, is uh, staking out a mob uh, drug deal. And meanwhile... A bunch of scuba ninjas show scuba up. Scuba ninjas. <laughs> yep. Scuba ninjas is the only way to describe them. That's perfect. I was very pleased later in the movie when I discovered that they were, in fact, ninjas. I was just sort of thinking, oh, they're scuba ninjas. Then they turned out to be the Yakuza. Um, so there's this bizarre, fairly incoherent scene, I felt, where <laughs> we should come back uh, you have to the three different sides. The you have these three different sides all fighting, and it's very unclear who's who. I'm like... So is the it, because they haven't introduced the yakuza at this point. It's only later that that you it's revealed that there is a third player in this. So suddenly, all of these scuba ninjas are killing, killing the gangsters. Frank is also there trying to kill the gangsters, and the scuba ninjas are trying to kill Frank. And then Frank has to jump on top of a car 
and shoot the guy driving it. When you say this, the as you're describing it, I'm only ima- I'm imagining Frank as Frank Reynolds from It's Always Sunny. <laughs> Wild card. It would be much better. Sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, been Danny DeVito the whole time. That, that would be amazing. gravitas. Um, <laughs> no, so the, the scuba ninjas show up, and then it's established that. Uh, the Yakuza is infiltrating the city and wants to take over uh, the criminal activities there. And they are led by Lady Tanaka and her, uh, her mute American daughter and her, her gang of roving ninjas. I did not get that that was her daughter. I thought it was just like her... her it was mentioned like once. She adopted a mute okay. American girl who is always with her. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, the, 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 and this is the scene where it's established that just like Oda and Ishii, she is the first woman to rise to the top of the yes. Yakuza, unless she means serious business. She, um, the, the only thing that I could think of when I was watching this is, you know, contextually, you place it in its time. This was 1989. It's not outlandish to think that, you know, in the same way that some people were concerned that Nintendo buying the Seattle Mariners was indicative of a Japanese takeover of the U.S., that that same fear was being played to here. It's like Japan's rising up again. It, we we got our American gangsters. That's fine. But we got to keep them Japanese gangsters out of here. <laughs> oh, so yeah, this was the, the yellow the yellow peril element of that. And yes, the the weird, insane yellow peril that some people felt about the, the Mariners is amazing. Yeah. I remember reading an article uh, for that on the undergrad, and the person who wrote the article was absolutely convinced that the obvious next step was that Nintendo or some other Japanese company was going to either move the Mariners or buy a team and move it to Washington and then bribe bribe American Congress people with tickets to the baseball <laughs> games. Yeah, well, I mean, the late 80s was was American cinema's golden age of Japanophobia. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at, like, Die Hard... Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, like John John McClane's whole, you know, irritation was that his wife got a good job with a Japanese, Japanese company. company. Yeah. yeah, Black Rain, which is a few years. Wasn't later. Wasn't there mm-hmm. a a huge uh, economic bubble that collapsed in the early '90s in Japan? Uh, I, I seem to remember uh, yes. being aware of that, oh, like '94. The lost decade, yeah, a yeah. little yeah. bit later in the decade. But but yeah, but at, at that point yeah, in time, they J- were Japan booming. was economic. Yeah, they were economically ascendant. Yeah, this is the this is yeah. the bubble pre pre. And it yeah. was all yeah, no, you know. That's what it, I was, Parents were telling their kids, you got to learn Japanese, because that's what everyone's going to be speaking in 20 years. And it, it was it was a very... <laughs> nope, didn't happen. Uh, but it, it, was a, it was a very sort of strange cultural moment that, you know, again, played to sort of that classic yer, yellow peril fear. And I think this... I'm the, glad we don't have that yeah. anymore. <laughs> Nobody feels that way about any countries in Asia right now. <laughs> um, Watch out for next I, year's film, The Wrath of Fu Manchu. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, Punisher 2, Fu Manchus. Um, <laughs> when, you, when you said Fu Manchus, I heard uh-huh. Fu Manchus. <laughs> Punisher 2, Fu Manchus. Starring Jackie Mason. <laughs> what am I doing here? Why am I being punished? I don't know. <laughs> and for this, I left Shanghai. Ha <laughs> 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 
sorry. I would watch that movie. (laughs) (laughs) The Jew from Shanghai. (laughs) Okay. All right, recompose. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But no, there's sort of... Can we call it Shanghai Holidays? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, go on. We can call it anything you want. I'm, I'm struggling. Go all on. right, all right. <laughs> Deep breath. No more Jackie Mason presents for <laughs> no you, Gary. Please don't. Sorry. Keep a lid on your Jackie Mason. <laughs> um. That's like yeah. a euphemism. What? So. <laughs> but again, our, our last Marvel film, Howard the Duck, we had the bizarre uh, Japanese, the Kamikaze truck stop. And in this one, we've got sort of the, the very prominent uh, Japanese subtext. I will be interested to see when we watch Captain America next uh, for our next film. We'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, will the Red Skull, in fact, be Japanese? Have you, have you not seen that version of Captain America? I, I, have, I have not seen it. Oh, I used to watch it on TV it. all the time. Uh, save, yeah, was, save, that, save your affection for the next one. Okay. So, um, and, and also, again, on the, the Japanese note, I found it very strange in the climax. Well, f- first of all, we established this wonderful ninja squad. The ninja squad gets killed in about 15 seconds. <laughs> like that, yeah. Can we talk yeah. about the, they, can we talk they don't about put that much scene? Of a yes. Because that's my favorite scene. <laughs> we can talk about that scene. Go, go ahead. All we, right. So the Yakuza, the Yakuza ambushes uh, Frank Castle, and they do that. In like an indoor carnival. Oh no! This is earlier. This this is like the, the Cody oh, Allen okay. scene. Okay, let's let's do the Cody Allen scene. Then we'll do the climax. This, yeah, this yeah. is my favorite scene in the okay. movie because what happens in this indoor carnival place that Frank is for reasons that either aren't explained or I don't remember. Um, there is one of those like giant slides that you get in like a burlap sack and you mm-hmm. slide down. You know those yeah. slides? Yes. And. This is how he is attacked by the Yakuza ninjas. They uh-huh. all start sliding down that slide, unmasked at him. It's an amazing uh, moment. It's, it's very important how they slide down, though, because they are all doing they are all doing rock star power slides. They look like Bruce Springsteen uh, at the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah, the they're catching air. They're all knees first. Have you ever going down have there? You ever it's amazing. Tried to do a power slide on your knees. It hurts. It's extremely painful. You it's get really so much friction so quickly. Your knees feel like they are on fire. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Although I have to imagine a slide like that's you know pretty, you know. Slick it's conducive to rockstar no. power slides. It's going to it's going to be easier than just doing it in a normal situation. But yes, it's very impressive. And is that is that the scene or is it a later scene where uh, there's about a minute straight of uh, of Frank shooting his gun? That's an earlier uh, that's, that's an earlier scene when Frank Wait, ambushes uh, or breaks into the the club with oddly like bodybuilder oh, strippers. Yes, because yes. yes. oh, the entire time he's doing that, he's making a duck face, <laughs> like he's making that like pouty thing. Uh, he's underburning. It's it's very yeah. important that he is shooting only slot machines in that scene. He is firing that gun <laughs> constantly, yes. and not one person is shot. 
there are a couple people who are blown up somehow, and they're shown <laughs> flying through the air. But everyone else is taking cover and running. And there are bullet holes coming out of the slot machines and the poker tables, but not one person that I saw. So uh, uh, this yeah. film is constantly... Dude, dude, it's very important to know slot machines are extremely explosive. Yes. <laughs> this is just common knowledge. Everyone knows that. I'm pretty sure that you can see the grenade launcher on his assault rifle, but I don't recall him ever firing it, but it looked like there were grenades going off. Several times in this nope, film, nope, we, just slot machines. we have moments where expectations are set up and then dashed. When, when Frank was dropping into the, slot, the, uh, the club and start shooting it up, we had been treated to shots beforehand of, like, bodybuilder women working as strippers. The obvious setup was for this to be like a Diamonds Are Forever type fight scene where the bodybuilder strippers take on Frank in like a knife fight. Doesn't happen. Just an odd bit of texturing in the background. Flushing out the world, I guess. Um, before, before we get too far into this, yeah. um, it might be worth uh, talking about how this, this film uh, was made entirely in Australia. I wish oh. you would have mentioned that an hour ago, because we are an hour into this recording. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's we we're yeah. just shooting the. It's uh, yeah. When you were saying uh, an unidentified city, it's Sydney. Oh yeah, it's, it's that explains that explains Lundgren's thick Australian accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it, it's what what was the uh, what was Ozploitation? It's an Ozploitation film. <laughs> it's an Ozploitation film. Yes. Uh, before we get too far from the club scene, I I just want to point out. I feel like the Punisher is usually fairly stealthy in his, his setup. Like, <laughs> he comes there. at a situation in a way that normally, you know, he's hiding up on top of the building. He's observing mm -hmm. how people are moving. He, he sneaks in, uh, in. In this scene, he comes through the skylight, guns blazing, into the center of a room so that he has to turn <laughs> in 360 degrees to shoot everyone around him. <laughs> Which he doesn't. He misses everyone, <laughs> yes. but kills every slot machine. He's and a terrible punisher. Seeing, I don't. Re there may have been guards firing at him, but I don't remember them. All I remember the the reactions being were people running from him, which seems insane. <laughs> yeah. Well, would you run toward? Well, what that scene. What that scene strangely reminded me of was Face Off. the The architecture of that of that bizarre casino. Is exactly like where the uh, not the climax, but like the pre-climax of Face Off happens. Like where like all of the all of the the, the terrorists, yeah, where all the terrorists' best friends, druggies, hang out, and then there's the big clash, mm -hmm. and there's like people crashing through skylights. Oh, I felt yeah. like the architecture, set design of the casino was exactly like that part of Face Off. Hmm. Okay. So we, we've gone oh, down a little bit of we've we've jumped back two major fight scenes. So we've got the club. If we pull out to that, then we have the Coney Island scene <laughs> with the uh, yakuza on the slides. And then if we we go back to what we were what got us on the show was the climax of the film when Frank and uh, Franco have teamed up to rescue little Franco, and they. Uh, well, okay, so I, I think his name was Tommy. Was Tommy. I do have to bring us back Tommy. to we, we need to talk about the kids for the moment. For a moment, oh, and the yes, reason we need yes. to talk about the kids the are, yeah. F first of all, the, okay. So all of the mobsters' kids are kidnapped by the yakuza and are going to be sold into slavery. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Frank breaks them all out, except for Tommy. He fails to get Tommy. And there is a scene where Frank is running through where the kids are being kidnapped, and the kids are with him and kind of fighting with him. Like, it, it's, it's his child army. Um, and Doesn't everyone who realize... fights from the sewers have a child army? And I, I was thinking to myself, I really want to see that film. I want to see, like, the kid army living up to Frank's legacy. Have you and ever read I, about the Children's Crusade? That would be amazing. I think, we, I think we, we could call it the Punishlings. <laughs> While we're on the topic of the whole scheme to kidnap the children and sell them into slavery, uh, you were talking about how sort of the disposability of, uh, of the gangsters. Yeah. And there's a fantastic scene where the gangsters, the gangsters have agreed to pay to get their kids back, which they're going to get double-crossed. No matter what they pay, they're still getting sold into slavery because why the hell yeah. not? Uh -huh. But there's this great scene where all the gangsters, with the exception of Franco, are there, like, waiting for the Yakuza to show up. Oh. And, uh, and they're drinking champagne, and they end up being poisoned. But the best part about this is one of the, one of the guys stands up to the Yakuza, and the mute American henchwoman takes off her earrings and throws them at this guy <laughs> yes. and crucifies him. Literally yes. crucifies yes. him, put these spiky earrings through his hands, pinned to the wall. Mm. With her, with her earrings, which do come up mm -hmm. later at the very mm -hmm. climax, the last fight with them, those earrings do play a role. I, I love that, and I also love that when the double cross happens, uh, the way it happens is uh, the Yakuza bosses walk in. They, for all intents and purposes, say, this is a double cross. <laughs> and then everyone in the restaurant which consists mostly of like <laughs> middle-aged people who late middle-aged people who kind of look like Martin Mall and Betty White <laughs> yes. jump to their feet and that is, a, that is a perfect description for the clientele. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's that's who's in this restaurant. They specialize in serving Martin Malls. Um, <laughs> Stand up oh, and all pull their guns. Yes. Which are, but for, from a yep. dramatic perspective in the film, all of the guns have silencers on them. And there is no <laughs> dramatic sting of music or interesting cuts. So it proceeds exactly like this. This is a double cross. People stand up in an orderly fashion, hold out their guns, and it sounds like... <laughs> you can't say that there are no interesting cuts. Heart racing. Because because there is a very distinct cut from the uh, the gangsters in the back being shot to now I can't remember exactly what she looked like, but I just remember a woman with a female employee with a gun uh, shooting like and her her face being extremely intense. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But but they also poisoned them, right? So there was mm -hmm. no no need yeah. to uh, shoot. Then yeah, the poison the, was on the glasses. <laughs> Yeah, not yes. in the champagne. The champagne! No. The glasses. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that is Lady Tanaka's line. Very ominously, very mm -hmm. Dragon Lady yeah. yellow peril thing. Yes. Uh, what, is, what is the line that she, she delivers when she uh, she shoots him, or she shoots the final gangster with like his own gun or that enormous revolver? And she shoots him poorly, by the way. She... She blinks and twitches, like, really badly when she shoots the gun. Like, it's the first time the actress has ever held a gun. Yeah. Uh, but there's oh, some what did, what did cheesy she line that she delivers. I can't remember. Uh, anyway. Mm, I forget it. 
Um, <clears throat> yeah, so we, we have to go back to the climax and talk about, first of all, all of the ninjas that we mm -hmm. have established as being horrible killing machines yeah. uh, are shot dead in about 15 seconds. In the Boxer Rebellion. Yeah, they're all just... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're literally, like, they're literally, like, the elevator opens and they're all just standing there <laughs> mulling, milling about with, with katanas and Frank and Franco just mow all of them down. Yep. Like, two of them aren't immediately killed, and Frank dispatches them with them mm -hmm. within a minute. Yeah. And then there's sort of a drawn-out sequence where Frank and Franco are walking through uh, the Yakuza lair and occasionally getting attacked, and Frank has to, uh, to kill... The Yakuza lair, who, which seems to be entirely <laughs> composed of red light bulbs and paper screens. Yeah, well... The the, the red lights are the emergency lights after Shake finally pushes the button when it falls through the grate. Okay, so we, we, we oh, have to talk yes. about that for a minute. We've because, because, oh, yes, Shake! Because, okay, so Shake Shake's job here, Shake <laughs> is supposed to turn on, he's supposed to activate the emergency systems to shut out the lights and do all that. And then if things go wrong, he is supposed to blow things up. His job consists of sitting like away from the action with a remote and pressing two buttons when a timer tells him to. At no point is Shake confronted by anyone, approached by anyone, or involved in the activity. While sitting by himself, left with the responsibility of fulfilling this crucial function, he just drops the remote down a grate. Doesn't he knock it over? I think he sits. He sits down and knocks it backwards. He, uh, he, yes, he, he acts he clearly in, does. Yeah, he 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 endangers the plan purely by his own incompetence, which is predictable. So, so he spends the rest. Of, he spends the rest of the movie with one of the Punisher stiletto knives, like trying to poke down there and stab the remote mm -hmm. with with the knife to uh, trigger the. Uh, Trigger the uh, button. Well, you know how self-centered and unreliable yeah. well, actors are. Doesn't he shoot the second he button? He shoots though? the second button! Because that's how you press buttons. Yes. Button. That, that's like the that's like shooting the switch on the television set. <laughs> it, it's it's Oh my god. Shake. It's amazing. You see, there's the, the thing about that whole sequence though is that it's genuinely funny. I think. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Like it's it, it's not just it, it's like the, the incompetence has been comedy, comic relief. His incompetence is completely motivated by his character. And yeah. so where in a lesser film this might be seen as some sort of plot contrivance, here even though it is a plot contrivance, here we completely believe it because it's Barry Otto being well, shaped. But it's it's like <laughs> I feel like that's the, the setup of that is it's supposed to be comedic and it's supposed to raise tension because you're like, oh, is he going to be able to, to fulfill his function? But mm -hmm. in practice, because of how unmotivated it is by any action occurring around him, it's just him <laughs> sitting there screwing up. It's it's like the saddest thing it's I've ever seen funnier. in my life. It, it's a, ma <laughs> a man failing at the one responsibility anyone saw fit to give him at this point in life. <laughs> And then desperately trying to fix the problem by stabbing at it with someone else's knife. That is a good summation. Yeah, it's not. It's not like an explosion went off and startled him, and he dropped yeah. the uh, dropped the remote. He's literally just sitting there well, looking at a looking at a stopwatch, waiting for time to run out. Look at the look at the character that they've built, though. He's 
is a clearly intelligent, uh, probably not talented, but you know he's mm-hmm. he's an intelligent person, an actor who is is not completely out of his mind like a lot of homeless people are, but is is so mm-hmm. drunk that he is living on the street, and his only friend is the Punisher. So <laughs> he's obviously a screw. Everything we should not have our expectations. Right Um, oh my god. Although, to be fair, he's a dude who talks in iambic pentameter just in everyday life. That might be a sign of mental illness. (laughs) But my point is that he, there is nothing about him to indicate that he is competent in any fashion. (laughs) No. And yet he is trusted with this crucial responsibility. Well, there's no one else. (laughs) Well, one of the goons could have done it. Although, get, given how poorly they handled uh, Berkowitz's escape, they probably would have seen similar results. Yeah. The other thing I love about uh, Shake's character is 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 that I mean, presumably, oh. this film is set contemporarily, right? I mean, it's supposed to be set in in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But Shake, I mean, he's not just any like out of work drunk hobo actor. He's a Shakespearean yeah, actor. I just realized before you but said that, that that's where his name comes from. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yep, that's where the name comes yeah. from. <laughs> yeah, I just got that, like, as about a paragraph ago. Yes. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very Dickensian kind of a uh, character. You, that's you what I mean. Period like, piece. like mm. he's not... He's not even like an '80s Shakespearean actor. He's a Shakespearean actor from Victorian yeah. times, right? I mean, he's a Shakespearean actor that would appear in a Charles Dickens novel. Like he's just so ludicrously anachronistic. I love. Sh- he's, he's great. The, he's he's great. the goddamn doppelganger from uh, from the Prestige. Yes, 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 he's exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He, he he is the best character in the film. Oh, absolutely, hands down. <laughs> oh my god, we're we're, we're ragging I don't on know, the shake right now. Kid who but didn't he... know that his father was a mobster. <laughs> my dad's not a gangster. <laughs> and and, and he, that, uh... also, incidentally, that kid is wearing the worst blazer I've ever seen in my life. Um, <laughs> He's Australian. Does shake exist in the comics? Uh, is he a real? Is he a real character? Not to my knowledge. No, the, there it. are not a lot of recurring. There Punisher is no, characters. There is no. There is no yeah. justice in this world if shake is not. The recurring uh, ally, homeless ally of the Punisher. Uh, I I don't I don't know who was in charge of Marvel at that time, but if they didn't go, obviously we need to in- integrate this character into the Punisher. It could have been their Harley Quinn. What the fuck? Exactly. Uh, well, it's not I, too I feel, late. <laughs> there are a couple more things that I want to talk about, and then we can kind of speed toward the uh, our final analysis of the film. I did want to mention, uh, again, playing into the Yellow Peril thing, Lady Tanaka is inexplicably dressed as a geisha for the final fight. It's a bit more kabuki makeup, I felt. But Fair yes, enough. there's definitely, she's weirdly, like, while she's threatening mm-hmm. to slit the throat of the child, uh, yeah, she's in this, like, insane geisha kabuki makeup and my, for, no, for no apparent My reason. only possible explanation was the producers looked again at Batman and said, hey, the Joker's a clown, our final lady should be a clown, too. That's the only conjecture, like possible explanation I can think of for why, why, after not establishing this at any point in the film, is she suddenly in chalk makeup? I think it's because she's Japanese. <laughs> and that, that's, I think, that's I, what all the Japanese do, Nick? In, in, in the insane well, logic of 80s yellow peril action movies, yes, that is what Japanese do. <laughs> when you're do. orientalizing them, yes. 
Yes. <laughs> and let's be honest, there's a lot of orientalizing going on in this movie. Uh, just a little. It's true. Um, scuba ninjas. Scuba ninjas. Scuba ninjas. Also, what were those spiked balls that they were throwing that looked like depth charges or some kind of explosive, <laughs> but but just stuck into the, yes. the uh, bad guys' faces? <laughs> They're the traditional Japanese yep. exploding ninja spike throwing bombs. But they didn't explode. They were just covered in spikes. <laughs> Yeah, they were like they were like black rubber balls covered in uh, covered in spikes. Yeah. It was like let's have a th- let's make a three D throwing star. I think was essentially the logic yeah. of that. Like ninjas have throwing stars. Not nah, boring. Yeah, <laughs> let's make a black rubber ball covered in nails. It it does seem more appropriate for a scuba ninja because it really looks like a death charge. You see, there's thematic consistency. Yeah. It's, it's, this is what I'm talking about. There's there are some good things around the periphery of this movie. Just just not at its big, beefy Scandinavian center. As I said at yep. the beginning, I'm not saying this is a successful movie, but I, I do think that there are things about this movie that I do inherently like. Certainly far more than I liked in How- Howard the Duck. Well, that, that, that's, a, uh, I think, a good segue into our sort of final... Final analysis of the film. So again, we, we begin by saying we're trying to establish how this succeeds or fails as an adaptation, as a production and an enterprise, you know, a, a commercial enterprise, and as a standalone piece of art. So let's just do the, uh, do the round table. How do you gentlemen feel it fares as an adaptation? I can't really speak to uh, the adaptation question mm-hmm. since I'm, you know, I never really read the Punisher comics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it, the the important takeaway here is that, that I mean, this is really before you know Burton's Batman. I mean, the production, you know, is yeah. like as much as it's tinged with that film, mm-hmm. it, you know, it it had a sort of similar approach, and so you sort of have to you know, commend the film for adapting it the way that they did, just because it was still sort of uncharted territory at that, mm-hmm. at that time. Dooch? Yeah, I also oh, can't really speak to uh, speak to it as an adaptation. I mean, I think the... I believe the Punisher showed up in the Spider-Man animated series, yes, if I remember did. correctly. Yeah. Uh, and otherwise, really, the only other thing I know him from is Punisher Kills the Marvel Universe... And the fact that every comic book shop in the world sells that T-shirt with <laughs> his skull on it, and again we go circling back to the idea that this is the only thing that's important about the character. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, as I said earlier, I just think I think in terms of sort of a mid-grade '80s action movie, it does enough things right for me to forgive the things it does wrong. I I, I actually my experience with the Punisher sort of directly. Uh, is, yeah, from the Spider-Man animated film, Punisher Kills the Marvel Universe, and mm-hmm. uh, from the, the John Travolta, Tom Jane movie. But I, I've also, mm-hmm. I've been aware of the character for a very long time. And as I recall, like back in the, the 90s, uh, before I started seeing Batman or Superman t-shirts regularly, the only superhero shirt that I saw of any kind was the Punisher shirt. Uh, hmm. So I, I certainly consider his shirt to be like the most iconic but um, disregarding the the lack of that in the film, uh, I felt like the movie was fairly true to the character, especially given that, uh, as Derek said, I can't really see this as 
a movie where they were trying to make a comic book adaptation because they clearly weren't. They were just trying to make a low-budget 80s, mm -hmm. or not 80s because they weren't thinking of themselves in that way, but a low-budget action film. And that's why I feel that, that Dolph, Lundgren, Dolph Lundgren was probably cast because he was recognizable enough and he was clearly like built as an action movie star. Uh, and mm -hmm. you don't need you know fantastic uh, acting ability. You just need line delivery uh, for an action movie star. But uh, so I felt it worked fairly well as an adaptation and mm -hmm. as just a, a trashy action movie. Uh, the the yeah. sort of the parallel adaptation that I came back to a couple times over the course of this was not a comic book adaptation, but actually a video game adaptation, the, the first Mortal Kombat film. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason that I came back to that is what the crew here with the Punisher basically did is they took the core elements of the character mm -hmm. and placed him into a recognizable template of a film. The first Mortal Kombat film did basically the same thing. It took the core elements of its property, you know, the characters and the basic scenario, and essentially plugged them into a fairly by-the-numbers Enter the Dragon adaptation. Huh. Okay. The, you know, disadvantage of that in terms of adaptation is you're losing some of the things that you would expect from the character itself. Like, there's no skull t-shirt. There's not sort of recognizable Punisher elements in there. But if the core, the core of the character is intact and placed into a more medium-appropriate or medium-established uh, within a medium context, I think that that makes this stand up as an adaptation a little bit more strongly than if they had just like tried to be extremely loyal to the comics. Because they were thinking of it as a how do we put this idea into this context. And I think, again, to your point, Derek, at a point where this had not been done a lot, where comic book films were not something that we really knew how to do yet, that may have been the right approach to it. <clears throat> As a film... Well, we're still... Oh. Sorry. As a film, um, I don't know. It was... Fairly paint-by-numbers. There were a couple of enjoyable things about it. I'm going to... I may regret saying this later. I actually enjoyed Howard the Duck more. <laughs> what? And, and the, the reason for that... You crazy. The reason for that is... Although Howard the Duck is undeniably a worse film, in really every conceivable way... It does have a better... Uh... It has a better theme song. I think we can both agree. And, and it, it has, it has some energy. It was like a lot of people trying really hard to do something and failing miserably, and the Punisher felt like a lot of people kind of trying to do something and sort of missing the mark. And I'll take a spectacular failure over like a pseudo mediocre accomplishment any day. Uh, I'm not volunteering yeah, to watch Howard the Duck again, but. <laughs> I had more fun watching Howard the Duck. I will def I will definitely be watching this movie before I watch Howard the Duck again. I mean, I'm not sure I'm going to go out and watch it regularly or anything, but yeah. if if sometime well, a year from now somebody goes, hey, you want to watch Punisher? And I was like, yeah, yeah sure. all right. 
Well, I will say I, that, like, the, the Goldblatt, the director, I mean, because he's an editor, I mean, basically his job is to save films. Like, yeah. he's, he's sort of saved, however, you know, however successful you want to say that happened, um, lots of, you know, just sort of train wrecks of films mm -hmm. um, and made <clears throat> them into something a little more kind of manageable. Um, and while he didn't like directly edit this film, I mean, he definitely had, you know, editing control over it. I mean, he, uh -huh. he said he did. And at some points he, you know, exercised that, you know, as in like cutting out the, the, the whole backstory. Uh -huh. So I think like just viewed in terms of like the craft of making a movie, um, it seems like sort of a cop out to say this could have been a lot worse, but it could have been like this movie could have been a lot worse. <laughs> I absolutely believe um, that. And yeah, I think for I oh, think yeah. for what it is, it's it's pretty successful yeah. actually for a low budget B eighties action film. I you know, yeah. I you know, I think I think you could do a lot worse than that. Yeah. I I have to say that in comparison to Howard the Duck, I feel like Howard the Duck. Uh, I am probably more likely to watch again. Because it is, I got the sense from it that it's, it's sort of akin to The Room in that it is so bad that the more that I watch it, the more I will enjoy it. Because I will be getting exponentially more joy out of the badness of it. And mm -hmm. I've watched bad movies before and hated them. But that, I mean, The Room, it was miserable the first time. But the second time, I was laughing the entire way through it. And I really feel <laughs> like that's the same experience I'm going to have with Howard the Duck. Because it's... I don't know how to put this, but uh, there's just a lot about it that is so absurdly bad that it it didn't, like, I don't know how to put it. I didn't feel offended by its badness. I just felt, like, ashamed for the people who, embarrassed for the people who made it. <laughs> I think well, part, point, part of it part of it also is like your expectations going into a film. I mean, a film like The Room or Howard the Duck, mm -hmm. you know, if you've never seen it before, <clears throat> chances are you've heard about it at some point. Yeah. And so yeah. you kind of set your expectations low. And I think what maybe mm -hmm. makes Howard the Duck successful in that regard is that you have low expectations for it. And the film actually... <laughs> surpasses <Underworld>. or underpasses, <laughs> underwhelms yeah, beyond your beyond your greatest lack of expectation. Um, Very true. You know, in in a in a way that is that is pleasurable, that's enjoyable. And here, I guess I just had really low expectations for the Punisher, yeah. um, and the the film surpassed them. Like the film, and I was like, you know what? This is yeah, I agree. Not bad. That's that true. was my so. And on the and on the topic of the room. We took you to see a <laughs> like a screening of it with like fans calling yes. out crap. That was a idea. mistake. <laughs> that was not that was a mistake. That was not how you should have watched the movie the uh, that way. I, but then as I recall, immediately afterwards or later that night, we watched yeah. it again and you enjoyed it if yes. I remember. Yes. Oh correctly. yeah, they were within the well, same this, day. Yeah. Uh, we this should is not, interesting. We should not have taken you to a screening for But your I cannot imagine any scenario in which I would have enjoyed it the first time. Uh well, that, no, this but is, I, think that, this, I think the screening did, didn't help because I you weren't even, even able to like appreciate mm. how bad the lines were because everyone was yelling over it or throwing spoons and crap. Yeah. <laughs> this is actually really interesting because like before maybe 2007, 2008 or something, I mean, The Room was really, really cult. I yeah. mean, it was really only known in, in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm, yeah. And so you could actually like go to a screening and it and 
it be comprised of people who are actually seeing it for the first yeah. time just because they'd heard about it from word of mouth or whatever. Nowadays, if you go to a room screening, it's going to be full of people who like absolutely know the film in and out and have their whole series of yeah. riffs and they're going to be like screaming at the screen the whole time. And yeah, the first time you watch The Room, you actually have to try and watch it seriously because the dialogue yeah. in itself like is bad and funny and unless you understand <laughs> that unless you have a context in which people are not screaming over it the entire time you're actually going to miss yeah. out it's because um, you know, only, like only through an attempt valid. to genuinely understand can we fail to understand and thus spiral into madness <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that I, was I feel like you have to <laughs> Yeah, you have to meet a film in a context in which it was made. Um, If you meet a film on the road, kill it. Yeah. Um, So, so, I had one one point. Just um, in everybody's sort of summation, it seemed like all of us or most of us brought up uh, the logo again, Mm -hmm. the the symbol. I was just thinking, uh, I certainly wanted to see it more, but I don't necessarily mean that he needs to be like wearing it all the time. Mm Just that it was acknowledged in some way, like if it had just like been like painted on the side of his motorcycle, for instance, yeah. it's on his dagger. I think that, but That's the dagger is a small little thing, and that just looks like a, a like a Nazi dagger. That just yeah. seems like something I would expect an SS officer to be uh, mm-hmm. to be using. It doesn't seem that iconic. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I understand him. He doesn't need to be in like the all black jumpsuit with the uh, with the nineties uh, pouches belt uh, like he is in the comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, that's a ridiculous look. I don't necessarily mean you need to like have it painted on his shirt at all times, but just well, don't, don't, just for that to somewhere somewhere be in the motif of him, like he's got mm-hmm. painted on his wall in his sewer lair, or it's on it's on the uh, gas engine of his bike or something. Don't worry, in future adaptations, just, we'll see the entirety of that ridiculous look. <laughs> <laughs> I just find it really interesting, like that. Yeah, I mean, we're all we're all sort of latching on to the the skull, the T-shirt, and you know, the people who I was at the screening with did that mm-hmm. as well. Um, and now, I mean, it's 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 interesting because now we consider that like part of the logic of it's franchise and superhero yeah. film, right? Yeah, yeah, it's the brand. Whereas in 1989, like, who knows who the Punisher yeah. is, right? Outside of like hardcore fans, there's no idea that you can actually make a brand out of the Punisher. Mm-hmm. I mean, true, they sell like you know they they sold Punisher T-shirts yeah. in, in comic book stores, but it was still a really uh, niche market then. Mm-hmm. And now that like comic book and superhero films are, like, the biggest business in cinema, like, that becomes part of the visual logic of how you actually, like, make a superhero film, is you have to have the, you know, whatever iconic symbol is associated with with your character. Yeah. Yeah, Um, Not only only for the fans, but also as a brand that you can use to, like... To merchandise, to spread this, just this very Mm -hmm. idea of, hey, there's this character, the Punisher... Um, you know, and it works. Like, that was basically the only thing I knew about the Punisher. And, and that was, I mean, that was sort of the basis of the marketing campaign for Burton's Batman. I mean, you mm-hmm. had everywhere that you looked during that period of time, the bat symbol was there. And that was mm-hmm. used to sell the film. I remember seeing VHS copies of the, of, uh, the film when I was a kid. And mm-hmm. there would be no title, no description, just the bat logo. Before Batman Begins came out, there were a bunch of different pitches for uh, Batman reboots. I think it was Aronofsky's was the one where Batman yeah. at no point actually is in the bat yeah. suit. And that mm. seems heretical, the idea that you wouldn't put them in it at some point. So I, I find it interesting I, that these, these two films being made at the same time 
Burton so strongly embraced the branding aspect of it, and, mm -hmm. and the Punisher did not. Not that that was the difference in the performance between the two films, but it's an interesting approach to, oh, to the I idea. Think, I think because you'll find that, that it is. I think you'll find that it is. If he was wearing that <laughs> yeah. shirt, we'd all be talking about the Punisher now. No one would know who Batman <laughs> is. Well, it was, because, really... it was because Burton's Batman, I mean, they had a conscious franchising strategy yeah. for that film, right? I mean, they brought Prince on mm -hmm. board to do, you know, that album with a bat dance oh, yeah. um you know the, i mean that that film was made from the get-go to be franchised mm -hmm. to be you know merchandised whereas if you know this b action film yeah. like they were probably just praying that the film would would make a profit they were praying that yeah. the film would be released and it wasn't yeah and it wasn't <laughs> i actually enjoyed the fact that the that the logo wasn't in it because it seemed like it wasn't a failure it was a conscious as you said derek a conscious choice to move into a more realistic world where a, a person who's doing this, uh, you know, who's actually trying to take revenge for their family, he wouldn't be walking around in a, in a shirt that would identify him to the public. Like, he's he's not going to emblazon this on his vehicle. He's not going to mark up his lair the, with it. Then why have the skull knives? He's clearly because wants he's to leaving have a calling card so that, so that in the criminal underworld, People will be afraid of him. Like clearly, he he's trying to identify the crimes with his his symbol, but not himself. Uh, that he wants to create that that sense of fear, uh, it, and also to mm -hmm. identify him to the police or to identify these crimes to the police and say that you know these are not just any other gangland killings. These are specific vengeance from one killing. person. Okay, right. I can buy that. Um, Anyone speaking of which, like at the very beginning of the film, uh, when I think it's Franco, some mobster is being uh, is uh, getting out of jail, and he's like, "Are you afraid?" The reporter asking him, "Are you afraid of the uh, Punisher?" He's like, "I don't believe in the Punisher." And then they immediately cut to a very, very ominous guy on a black motorcycle in all black. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, this is not a stealthy way to be going nope. about following mobsters. <laughs> I'm pretty sure every mobster in the city would be on the lookout for for tough-looking guys in all black at this point. Yeah. After you've killed 125 of them over a five-year period. Uh, also, that is a massive criminal enterprise, 125 people, mm -hmm. and he apparently hasn't gotten to any of like the main lieutenants. So any, You uh, have to imagine he's just really... Ki other, he's, he must you know, be killing some... Up. He must be... Maybe, but he must be killing some really low-rent people mm -hmm. as well. I mean, these can't all just be... There can't have been 125 capos of this... Of the criminal enterprise, he has to be killing like numbers. Oh, men. he's got to grind and, like, and level really up low men, before he can low go after the, the big totem. guys. Any, I, I, uh, I any final that, thoughts know, the on the, the film before we? Oh yeah, yeah. Cut off one head too. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts on the film before we uh, uh, before we call it a show? The Punisher would have been great if they got someone else to play the Punisher. Hmm. Who, who, I think that's <laughs> who would be who was your, who would be your ideal Punisher? For that period of time? Oh, God. Uh, Eli Wallach. <laughs> I don't know. Joe Piscopo might, uh, <laughs> might have been an excellent Punisher. I actually really liked your idea of uh, Danny DeVito earlier. I think Danny DeVito would have been an interesting <laughs> choice. Danny DeVito. I'm just imagining... Danny DeVito. I'm just imagining Danny DeVito like... Uh, like... Ton uh, what's the word? Uh, how do you describe it when uh, fat people walk? <laughs> Waddling? Waddling. waddling, yes, waddling. thank you, waddling. Yes. Like, waddling along in the way that he yeah. does, like, with a gun, like, uh, mm -hmm. running people down. 
Just imagine how much funnier this movie would be if you had a, a tiny fat man as the uh, protagonist. I think. I think. So are you I picturing Bruce the Campbell penguin would have made, would have made Bruce Punisher. Campbell would have made a great Punisher. I yes. agree with that. Obviously, obviously yeah. not a, Bruce no, obviously not good. a bankable star. Then mm. probably not even really now outside of uh, a cult audience. I, I know. I know who I'd do um, it with. I know. I know who I would cast as. It would be Kurt Russell. Ooh, yeah, Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell would, would do it again. This is probably uh, not. Mean, a, this already, is not a movie that would have the budget for Kurt Russell. Speaking of Kurt Russell, yeah, that's true. Uh, the best segue, <laughs> no matter the context. Speaking of Kurt Russell, I will always be listening. So Go on, on on Monday, uh, the the Cinematheque here at the university is is playing uh, Kurt Russell's first film, which is a film that is almost impossible to see. Um. It's a film called Skate Town USA. Uh, it, it features an insane disco soundtrack. Um, okay. All your all your favorite seventies TV stars. Insane was redundant. Uh, including including Ruth Buzzy and Flip Wilson. And Flip Wilson. It, is, it is a yes, and it is apparently. Um, a basically a competitive roller skating film. Um, <laughs> not, not, and, not like roller derby. The, competitive like roller, roller skating. No, or not like no, roller, roller skating. Like roller dancing. Oh so a competitive dance on roller skates. Um, so like I, Hal from Malcolm in the Middle. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, if I, I don't know if it's so at it's, all possible to see this um, in any kind of legal format. Probably not. Apparently, like the the licensing it, for all the songs in the film is astronomical, yeah, and the oh, studio yeah, just doesn't want to. Um, but it's worth like checking out if mm-hmm. if there's a screening in your area. Okay. Well, I will keep an eye on that. <laughs> Skate Town. I'm sure there will be very soon. <laughs> so, uh, in, in a final analysis, the film is uh, not not irredeemable it it has some good qualities to it it is hampered mostly by its uh its casting and maybe a little bit of over-reliance on some established tropes but uh not terrible and we may see down the road possibly the most tolerable of the three punisher films the three unconnected (laughs) starring different punishers set in different continuities punisher films Uh, i have not seen any of the punisher movies so i can't I, i cannot speak to that yet well, obviously I've seen this Punisher. Yeah. The Tom Jane, uh, the Tom Jane and John Travolta one is actually very uh, watchable. I think it's one of the better comic book adaptations uh, mm. from, like, at its time period. It did it much better yeah. than a lot of other films have. We we will get to that in time. We'll that. For na- for now, we are uh, we are going to sign off. Thank you to the assembled panel. Um, do you guys have? Anything you want to plug? Any anywhere that people can find you, either online or in person? Uh, sure. You can uh, follow me on Twitter, Derek Long zero eight. I'm uh, uh, Daniel right, Watson um, Jones. Is uh, mo- <laughs> uh, Daniel sorry, Watson what? Jones is moved by Will alone uh, at uh, at moved by Will alone on Twitter. Best orb. B-E-S-T-O-R-B. The B is for bargaining. Thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> Let me tell you. The extra B, The you B mean. is for bargaining. Because there are two yeah. Bs in it. One of them is, both, is for both your last Both Bs name. are for bargain. It's bargain 
Esteban, Morgan. The extra B is for BYOBB. What's that B for? That's a typo. That's a typo. All right, so we're going to stop recording, but keep video chatting? Yeah, give me a second to wind down. Is that what's happening now? This is the wind down. Oh, okay. Sorry. Nice. Uh, and you can find me at Stefan Claypool, S-T-E-F-A-N-C-L-A-Y-P-O-O-L, also on Twitter. Uh, join us next time when we uh, we pull out our American flag underwear and stand up and salute uh, J.D. Salinger's kid playing Captain America <laughs> in the 1990 adaptation, Captain America. Don't get your hopes up. It's a canon film. <laughs> Yes! Bye! <laughs>